In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In the passage um, from 2 Timothy uh, that was read this morning, today, we see Paul, the Apostle Paul, encouraging a young minister whose name is Timothy. And he is, um, he's giving Timothy sort of um, coaching, like business coaching. He says, Timothy, just keep it simple. Make the main thing the main thing. Um, you need to stay on point. He says you need to avoid mission drift, no matter what people seem to want to hear. Um, he says that people will have itching ears. They will long to hear something that suits their fancy. And um, whatever that latest ideological zeitgeist may, might be. He says no. Um, instead, he quotes, solemnly urges Timothy to whether the time is, is favorable or unfavorable, it doesn't matter. He is to, quote, proclaim the message. Proclaim the message. Now, that was 2,000 years ago he's talking about this. Um, it's now here, October the 16th in Charlottesville on a beautiful October morning. Proclaim the message. The message hasn't changed one iota. So I want to ask, again, what is the message? But not just that, but how does it affect you? How does it relate to you in your heart, in your life, in your mind, in your actual selves this morning? And to get out what that message is, I'm going to tell you the story of another young minister. His name, um, and it's a true story. So his name is Henry Gorecki. Uh, in September of 1951, um, fewer, a few of you were alive there. I can tell which ones, when, was the, when that was happening. Uh, in 1951, the Saturday Evening Post published an in-depth story about Henry's ministry. The story was entitled, quote, I walked to the gallows with the Nazi chiefs. That's the title of the story. Um, Henry served as the Protestant chaplain at Nuremberg Prison in the immediate aftermath of World War II. They had to wait five years even to do this because it was a radioactive, uh, it, 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 obviously you can imagine that subject um, was, it, it created all kinds of activity, of emotional activity among people. Now there's an excellent post about this on Mockingbird if you want to know more. But, Here's the gist. Henry grew up as a farm boy in Missouri. He was ordained as a Lutheran pastor. Um, then the International Military Tribune found him, and they requested him uh, to be this chaplain at Nuremberg because obviously most of the Germans were Lutheran. He had experience as a prison chaplain, and he spoke serviceable German. Now, um, here's what's interesting about the Geneva Convention. The Geneva Convention stipulated at that point, maybe it still does, that all prisoners, no matter what they've done, no matter what sort of horrendous crimes they have, have committed, um, should, quote, receive Christian comfort and counsel. Isn't that interesting? So, they called Henry. At, at first, Henry's like, I can't do this. 
There's no way that I can do this. And he had good reason. Um, his initial reaction to the call was that his own personal anger would, would be a bar, would, would, would be an obstacle to any kind of effective gospel ministry in this setting. He wrote, I had been at Dachau concentration camp where my hand touching a wall had been smeared with the human blood seeping through. In England, for 15 months, I'd ministered to the wounded and dying from the front lines. And he goes on. My oldest son had been literally ripped apart in the fighting. Our second son suffered severely at the Battle of the Bulge. Our third and youngest son had just entered the army. That was his situation when the call came. You know, how on earth could this man do this? I mean, the enemy, how could he minister to the enemy responsible for what was very clear by 1951, or by, well, right after, by 1945, 46, the horrific slaughter, systematic slaughter of six million people. Um, we've watching Ken Burns's The Holocaust, if you've got the stomach for it, it's super good. But how could he minister to the enemy that had ripped apart his oldest son, the enemy that his second son had suffered from in battle? Wouldn't there be a conflict of interest, right? I mean, what, who could possibly blame this man if he recused himself from the International Military Tribune's call? How could God expect him to do such a thing? So, at this point, I'm going to pivot to what I said at the beginning, the message. It's the same message that Paul talked about, the same message that has been preached in the church for these 2,000 years, the same message that Henry was given charge of in the Nuremberg prison. It's the same message that we hear today. What is the message? And to get at what that message is, um, I want to talk about Henry's loyal general. He's a field marshal named Herr Keitel, um, who was a terrible person, responsible for countless deaths and widespread suffering like all the Nazis. And so Henry had heard of him. He was famous at that point. And Henry walked into his cell, and Keitel was reading his Bible. And he looked at the pastor coming in to his jail cell, and he smiled. And holding his Bible... He smiled at the pastor and said, I know from this book that God can forgive even a sinner like me. Henry was a little bit skeptical, but then he said, Keitel, quote, knelt by his cot, read a portion of scripture, then he folded his hands, looked heavenward, and began to pray. Never have I heard prayer quite like that. Though I cannot break confessional confidence to share it, I can say that he spoke penitently of his many sins, here's the message, and pleaded for mercy by reason of Christ's sacrifice for him. That is the message we proclaim. I was doing a baptism. Um, yesterday in St. Anne's Chapel, 
private baptism at 10, and the seven-year-old brother of the um, boy I was baptizing looked up at that stained glass window of Jesus hanging on the cross and said, uh, asked his dad, what's, what's that about? And he asked me, I said, well, that's the message. That's everything. That's everything. That's the message of the gospel, the message to proclaim whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. It's the message especially needed in an age of itching ears. And what is the message, to put it this way, is the radical forgiveness of sin. Full stop. Based not a whit on what we've done or haven't done, but entirely on Christ's sacrifice, as Herr Keitel professed. That's the message. Yes, that's the message, even for the Nazis. Yes, that's a message to make the analogy even for the white supremacists who were over there in the park in 2017. Yes, that's the message even for all of the people who have done you personal harm. It's a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? The radical forgiveness of sin based entirely on the merit of Jesus Christ is uncomfortable. And now I want to make a distinction, so help stay with me here. If you've been directly harmed by somebody as, who hasn't been, and everybody has been, we're harming people, you, you may not be able to forgive that person. You just can't do it. Um, you may not be able to do what Henry did in Nuremberg Prison. Nobody could do that except by the extraordinary miracle of the grace of God. But you may find that when you see that person who's harmed, you can't overcome your gut reaction of outrage and recompense, your desire for recompense and justice, your anger. Now, I want to just do a little confessional. If you're in that boat with somebody, so am I. I, I can't. I have some person in my life where I can't do it. I see this person and bang. It's right there. I mean, I'm preaching to you, but I know it, but I can't do it. So we're, we're people who are susceptible to the hurts of the world. However, this is the message. Just because you or I are unable to forgive doesn't mean that that person is not forgiven. Just because we can't forgive doesn't hollow out the radical nature of the message that we are to proclaim even though we're not able to do it. Because it's really not about us, the message we proclaim. It's about him and what he's done in our stead. As I said, Henry struggled with his call to proclaim this message. He said, how could a one-time Missouri farm boy make any impression on disciples of Hitler? Given my bitterness and anger, how could I summon the Christian spirit which this message demanded of a chaplain? And he prayed and prayed and prayed. And he reported that at some point as he prayed about this, his anger and rage gave way to new emotions, to pity and compassion. Slowly, the men at Nuremberg became to me just as lost souls whom I was being asked to help. This is not a sermon so you can get up and go be like Henry because that will just leave you frustrated. If God brings you to that point, 
praise God. That'll be better for you, it'll be better for the person, it'll be better, better for everybody. Pity and compassion are rare commodities in this divided world, aren't there? Where um, everybody is bloodthirsty for justice and recompense. But this is not a sermon about making you do that. This is a sermon to root home the message that Paul solemnly urged Timothy to proclaim in season and out of season. The unique message of the gospel, which is the forgiveness of sins, both for the victim and the victimizer alike, in one fell swoop. I can guarantee you will not find that message anywhere else. I've never heard it outside a gospel proclamation. Music, uh, musician and, and writer Nick Cave is quite brilliant, said it this way in his red hand blog. The gospel quote deals with the necessity for forgiveness and mercy. Whereas I don't think secularism, secularism has found the language to address these matters. The upshot of that is a kind of callousness towards humanity in general, or so it seems to me. It seems, so it seems to me too. Look around. I solemnly urge you, Paul says, to proclaim the message. Now, don't, the message was just as radical and offensive back then as it was now. It's funny, somebody emailed me the other day after reading an almost daily devotion or listening to a sermon or something and said, that he just thought it was good, but he can't really get on board, fully get on board with the idea of a free pass. Right? Something about a free pass rubs us the wrong way. Free pass. Can't do a free pass. By the way, it's not free. I mean, it's just, it's, it costs more than any human being could ever conceive of, which would be the death of God. It cost him everything. It's just free for us. Totally free for us. It is a free pass in that way. But I get, I get that that sticks in the crawl, something about a free pass, it just rubs you the wrong way. But I would just say this, it rubs us the wrong way, it rubs you the wrong way, until what? It's you who needs the free pass. <laughs> until it's you who's doing the sinning. Until it's you who's doing the hurting. It's you who's doing the damaging. The offense of the gospel, then, when, when it's you in need of that free pass, well, that, that's the attraction of the gospel. It's an oasis amid the deserts of justice and revenge in which we are currently swimming and drowning. It's you when you realize maybe you're just a lost soul too, you need that free pass. That's why the message of the proclamation, the proclamation of the message will always endure. For as long as there are sinners, there will be the need for the forgiveness of sin, not just for them, but for you too. And it seems to me that's why we're all here. Amen.